Welcome to the show, folks. Last time, Jesus revealed to his disciples that he was destined to go to Jerusalem, be rejected by the religious leaders there, and be killed, but then rise again three days later. This upset Jesus' followers, because by following him, they had a different perspective on what being a follower of his meant. It didn't include this. Who exactly are they following anyway, you know? So Jesus told them, look, if any of you desire to come after me, let him deny himself and take up his own cross and follow me. Whoever's bent on saving his life here will lose it. But whoever loses his life here for my sake will find it. And that has some double meanings behind it, folks. The obvious one Jesus defines in his next breath. But the other meaning behind this is that everything you choose to hold on to in this world, that's not of God. It's destined to slip through your fingers no matter what. That's the way it's always been. But when you focus on what's eternal, then your entire outlook on life is eternal. Stuff like your career, your status in society, your bank account, your goals in life, what brings you peace and satisfaction. Suddenly, all of those things don't mean as much because they're put in their proper perspective. And then you get to enjoy life for what God put in it because you start to see everything from his perspective, from an eternal perspective. What you strive for changes, and everything that happens along the way in life is no longer something that you have to grasp tightly and hold on to to keep, because you now know that God is the one who supplies all of your needs, not only your needs, but your desires as well. So now everything's about him and what he wants, because you know that what he wants is filtered through perfect knowledge, perfect wisdom, perfect justice, and most importantly, perfect love. And once we finally get that, and it takes us forever to learn that, but once we finally get it, we slowly begin to learn how to get out of the way and let God take over. What he's taught us becomes more important than what the world's taught us. And that's the last thing that Satan wants, folks. So he bombards our thoughts and our emotions with distractions. And those distractions are so intense that the only way around them is to completely deny them. That's what Jesus was getting into. If you want a life... And you have to let go of everything that you would call a life because your perspectives are impaired and your focuses and actions are not going to work. You can't manipulate your focus. You can't clear up your focus. You have to completely change your focus. Jesus continued and said, what profit would you have if you gained the entire world but forfeited what was yours in the kingdom? What would a man give up as an exchange for what's his in the kingdom? For the Son of Man is going to come in his glory and in the glory of his Father and with his angels. And then he will render account and reward every man accordance with what he's done. If you've done nothing, you'll be rewarded nothing. You'll lose your rewards. You won't lose your citizenship because that citizenship wasn't purchased by you to begin with. Jesus bought that. But as for everything else waiting for you in that coming kingdom, that all depends on what you've invested in here. Jesus said, whoever denies himself and loses his life here for my sake, will find everything they ever wanted waiting for them there. But if you sought after it here, even if you somehow get it all, you'll lose it. You'll lose it here and there. But since your citizenship in that coming kingdom has already been bought and paid for, why not build on that future now? People prepare for their retirement, don't they? A lot of us prepare for unseen futures. So let's build towards our certain future that's already got a foundation, the rock. That's what Jesus is getting into concerning following him, his teachings, his ways, his examples, his words. 
And then Jesus said, For whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes. In other words, you were given a gift, and you accepted it, and your future is coming. But while you're still here in this time period, in this faithless and adulterous world, if that's more appealing to you, and the one who's provided you with your awesome future is an embarrassment to you in this present faithless world, then when Jesus comes, he'll be embarrassed and ashamed of you. And that's where we left off last time, folks, but Jesus wasn't finished. He then said the following in Matthew chapter 16, verses 28, Mark chapter 9, verse 1, and Luke chapter 9, verse 27. He said, truly and solemnly I say to you, there are some standing here who will in no way taste death before they see the Son of Man coming into his kingdom. That's Matthew's record of it. Mark reports that Jesus said they wouldn't taste death before they saw the kingdom of God come with power. Luke reports that he said that they wouldn't taste death before they saw the kingdom of God. Now, folks, that statement has caused a lot of head-scratching and confusion for obvious reasons. Jesus just spent the better part of his speech talking about the coming of his kingdom to the planet Earth, which is yet future. But then after going through all that, Jesus then said to his followers, standing right there in front of them 2,000 years ago, he said, some of you will in no way taste death before you see meaning with their very own eyes, before they die, some of them will see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. And from that, a lot of people assume that because of the cross and some other events, that God changed his mind about the timing of the coming of the kingdom to the earth. But if you're going to go there, then that implies that Jesus didn't know what he was talking about here. That implies that Jesus made a mistake, which isn't very likely since Jesus was with the Father before the foundation of the world before the creation of linear time and mapped everything out in advance. The timing of both comings wasn't a surprise. It was etched in stone outside time. That's why the Old Testament prophecies differentiate between the two. Malachi chapter 3 is the first coming. Malachi chapter 4 is the second coming. And there's many examples like that all throughout the Old Testament. So what's going on here? Well, look closely at the text. The first part of Jesus' speech, he's talking about events that transpire in the kingdom when the kingdom comes to the planet Earth. The kingdom itself already exists. It just doesn't exist on the planet Earth yet. Right now, it's confined to heaven, which is everything outside the physical universe. When Jesus speaks of the planet Earth becoming a part of that kingdom, he always uses the title, the kingdom of heaven, meaning specifically the kingdom from heaven or the kingdom that is of the kingdom of God, right? We talked all about that when we went through Matthew chapter 5 and Luke chapter 6. If that's new to you, go back and check that out because I don't want to get too repetitive about it here. But the kingdom of God has always existed. Right now, because of man's sin, the planet Earth is not part of God's kingdom. But one day it will be. And that future event is what Jesus was speaking of leading up to this last verse. But look at this last verse closely. Jesus said, truly and solemnly, I say to you, there are some standing here who will in no way taste death before they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. That's Matthew's record of it, and look at it closely. Jesus didn't say they wouldn't taste death before they saw the Son of Man come with his kingdom. He said they wouldn't taste death before they saw the Son of Man come in his kingdom, meaning come into his kingdom. Big difference. 
But Josh, I thought Jesus was eternal. I thought he was with the Father before the foundation of the world. Well, he was before he became human, but we're not talking about the pre-fleshly state of Christ. We're talking about who he was after he became human. That's why it says the Son of Man. Jesus the human was born in Bethlehem, right? Well, Bethlehem is on the planet Earth. He hadn't come into his kingdom yet. So that's what this is talking about. Nothing in that last phrase about bringing the kingdom to the earth. Notice also the phrase kingdom of heaven isn't used. And Matthew used it constantly, but not here. Mark reports that Jesus said they wouldn't taste death before they saw the kingdom of God come with power. So in Mark's record, it does sound kind of like the kingdom is coming. But notice it's not the kingdom of heaven. Not the future kingdom, but the kingdom of God. In other words, before some of these guys die, they're actually going to see with their own eyes the kingdom of God temporarily intersect with the planet Earth. Temporarily. How do I know it's temporary? Because Mark didn't use the phrase kingdom of heaven. That's a title for a future event that will be permanent. Luke reports that he said they wouldn't taste death before they saw the kingdom of God. Once again, the title kingdom of God is used, not kingdom of heaven. And once again, nothing about the kingdom being established on the earth, but merely that these guys, before they die, they're going to get a glimpse while they're still alive into God's kingdom. And believe it or not, it happens in the next chapter. Let's keep reading. This event is recorded in Matthew chapter 17, verses 1 to 8, Mark chapter 9, verses 2 to 8, and Luke chapter 9, verses 28 to 36. Matthew and Mark report that this event happened six days after Jesus said what he said. Luke says it was about eight days, which sounds to me like he wasn't certain. He concludes it was about eight days later, but Matthew and Mark are pretty certain it was six. But anyway, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John, his brother, and led them up on a high mountain apart by themselves. Luke tells us Jesus did it so that they could pray. But then all three records report that Jesus' appearance underwent a change in their presence. That's Matthew's way of putting it. Mark said that he was transfigured before them. Luke reports that Jesus' countenance became different. Matthew reports Jesus' face shone bright like the sun, S-U-N. That's pretty bright. The Amplified brings it out saying it was clear and bright, but that's just his face. Matthew then reports that his clothes were as white as light. And the Greek word for light there is luminescent. In other words, while his face shined as bright as the sun, his clothes were shining too. But not as bright, they were glowing white. That's Matthew's description. Mark's description is so full of intensity that every English translation that's out there says it differently. The King James says his raiment became shining exceedingly white as snow, so as no fuller on earth could white them. And a fuller, folks, was a person who cleaned laundry. The Amplified translates it, His garments became glistening, intensely white, as no fuller on earth could bleach them. The English Standard says his clothes became radiant, intensely white. The ISV says his clothes became dazzling white. And Luke's record says his clothes were sparkling white. And the Amplified translation of Luke's record says that his clothes became dazzling white, flashing with the brilliance of lightning. So his face is brighter than the sun, and his clothes are as bright as lightning. Folks, this is pretty intense. Light wasn't shining on him. He was the source of the light itself. His face, his clothes, he was shining. And it was as bright as the sun. 
Next time you're outside, try looking at the sun and imagine it being the brightness of Jesus' face. Now, can you imagine being Peter, James, or John, seeing this and thinking, what am I seeing? This isn't over. Let's keep reading. Matthew, Mark, and Luke all report that there appeared two men with Jesus who were holding a conversation with him, and Luke reports that they appeared in splendor, majesty, and glory. All three reporters tell us that these two men were none other than Moses and Elijah. Moses hadn't been seen by earthly human eyes in 1,500 years, folks. The last time anyone saw of Moses was when he walked up the mountain to look at the promised land before he died and God himself buried him. That's recorded in Deuteronomy chapter 34. And no one knows where his body lies. As best we can date things, that happened in the year 1423 B.C. And yet here he is standing with Jesus, speaking to him some 1500 years later. Elijah hadn't been seen by earthly human eyes in 900 years. The last anyone saw of him was when God picked him up and took him into heaven in a chariot of fire drawn by horses of fire, whatever that means. That's recorded in 2 Kings chapter 2. And that's really mysterious, folks, because from what we can tell there, Elijah didn't die, but was picked up while still alive and taken into heaven. And as best we can date things, that happened in the year 868 B.C. And yet, here he is, standing with Jesus, speaking to him some 900 years later. So here we have two extremely huge, biblically famous heroes. Moses from the 15th century B.C. and Elijah from the 9th century B.C. together, speaking with Jesus in the 1st century A.D. And it says they were talking with Jesus. We'll get into what they were talking about here in a minute. But I want to spend some time to point out some things that are blatantly obvious on the one hand, and yet we don't think about stuff like this when it really counts. What I'm about to point out is kindergarten material that's bold and plain to see, but like I said, we don't think about stuff like this when it counts. When our loved ones die, we imagine all kinds of weird things thanks to what I like to call Christian folklore. Not biblical truth, but Christian folklore. All of that junk gets in the way of our faith when a loved one dies. So I want to take this opportunity to point out some blatantly obvious facts seen here in this report so that we can take these facts and hold them close to our heart when a loved one dies. Look at this. Even though Moses lived 1,500 years ago and Elijah lived 900 years ago, they're seen here very much alive. They're not ghosts. They're not floating spirits. They're not some vaporous, misty aura of what they used to be before they left the earth. They are solid, tangible, recognizable human beings who are self-aware and able to stand and speak. And they aren't angels, by the way. A lot of people think when Christians die, they become angels. Not so. Angels are a completely different species of life altogether. They're part of God's creation, but not physically related in any way to the human race. So knock that myth out of your head about humans becoming angels after they die. Another myth to knock out is this business of soul sleep. For those of you who don't know what soul sleep is, some people think that after a person dies, that their soul, their software, is unconscious and non-existent until the day of the resurrection. And they come to that conclusion because they think, well, if they have no body until the resurrection, then they don't exist. No hardware to hold their software. So they say the soul sleeps until a new body is formed on the day of the resurrection. But folks, if that line of thinking is accurate, then who are these guys Jesus is talking to here? 
because the day of the resurrection hasn't happened yet. Matthew, Mark, and Luke report that it's Moses and Elijah. Well, how can that be if they're dead and the day of the resurrection hadn't happened yet? See, what the Bible calls the resurrection isn't just about receiving a new body. It's about receiving our final new body, the final upgrade. It's a final upgrade of hardware that's perfect. It's so perfect, that's why it's final. You can't get better than perfect. None of us get those perfect bodies until that special day. Jesus called it the last day. But that doesn't mean that after we die, we exist in oblivion until that day. Otherwise, this conversation reported here wouldn't be happening. See, right now we're in temporary hardware. And after we die, we receive another piece of temporary hardware. That's an upgrade. But it's not the final upgrade. The final upgrade is given to us on the day of the resurrection, which Jesus called the last day. So don't fall for this idea of soul sleep. Our software never stops running, folks. And like I said, Moses and Elijah here are not ghosts or spirits without hardware. They are solid, tangible, recognizable human beings who are self-aware and able to stand and speak. They are physical beings, just not under the physics that you and I are used to, the physics that are imprisoned inside a three-dimensional space-time domain that's impaired by the presence of sin, but instead new physics, physics without the curse, physics that are eternal. And even though Moses and Elijah's life on the earth was separated by 600 years of history, here they are standing together in the same place at the same time. And notice also that neither Moses or Elijah are standing with the aid of a cane. So Moses being more than 1,500 years old and Elijah being more than 900 years old apparently hasn't disabled them. Moses was pretty old before he died to begin with, but not here. Here he's standing without any problems. And earthly human eyes hadn't seen either one of these guys in centuries. And yet, Peter, James, and John somehow recognized who they were. So this weird idea that after we die, we become some kind of spiritual entity without form is not biblical, folks. Peter, James, and John recognized these guys for who they were. Now, be honest with you, I don't know how. If I were to see Moses or Elijah, I might not recognize them. I'd recognize Charlton Heston, but probably not Moses. But Peter, James, and John all knew who they were. The same is true with us and our loved ones. When we're reunited, all of us will easily recognize each other. And whatever impairments that we had before, they won't exist then. So back to the text. It says Jesus took with him Peter, James, and John, his brother, and led them up on a high mountain apart by themselves to pray. But then Jesus' appearance underwent a change in their presence. He was transfigured before them. His countenance became different. Jesus' face shone bright like the sun, and his clothes were dazzling white with the brilliance of lightning. And two men were talking with Jesus, Moses and Elijah, and they appeared in glory. Now, Luke is the only record of the three that says something about what they were discussing. It says they were discussing Jesus' departure, which he was about to bring to fulfillment in Jerusalem. Don't gloss over that, folks. Jesus is discussing with Moses and Elijah his upcoming death and resurrection and subsequent departure from the earth afterwards. And this is amazing, folks. I mean, Luke is the only one who records the fact that when this happened, Peter, James, and John were asleep and were awakened by this event. And that after Jesus had finished speaking with Moses and Elijah as they were leaving him, then Peter steps in to say something. 
Matthew and Mark kind of give you the impression the conversation was being held and Peter just interrupted. But Luke points out it was as Moses and Elijah were leaving that Peter stepped up and said to Jesus, Master, it's good that we're here. Let's set up three shelters, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. Now, folks, people have pondered for years what in the world Peter meant by that. But Peter tells us himself in his record of this that he didn't really know what he was saying. Peter's secretary wrote in Mark chapter 9, verse 6, that Peter didn't know what to say, for he and the others were terrified in a violent fright filled with dread. The King James uses the phrase sore afraid. Not so afraid, but sore, S-O-R-E, sore afraid, as in physical pain from the fear. The last time the King James used that phrase was when the shepherds were surrounded by the glory of the Lord, when an angel came to announce Jesus' birth. They were sore afraid. So Peter's just running off at the mouth here because he knows he shouldn't be afraid as Jesus, Moses, and Elijah. But he is afraid because this isn't normal. They've just entered the twilight zone on steroids, you know. Jesus is as bright as the sun, and he's talking to two dead guys. Not just any two dead guys, but two dead guys who summarize what to them was the entire Bible. Who are we to even be witnessing this, you know? That's the, that's the feeling. But it's wrapping up here. Jesus has finished speaking. Moses and Elijah are leaving. So Peter steps in. Hey, wait a minute. Don't go. Master, it's good that we're here. Let's set up three shelters. One for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. But as Peter's saying this, something happens. Now they're really scared. I mean, they're already scared, but watch this. As Peter was still speaking, suddenly a shining cloud composed of light came down and overshadowed them and enveloped Jesus, Moses, and Elijah. Matthew's the only one who reports the cloud was shining. Luke reports that Peter, James, and John were seized with alarm and struck with fear. And then a voice came out of the cloud that said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I love and am well pleased. Listen to him. And in the Greek, the word listen implies that it's continual listening. In other words, they've been listening, but, you know, keep listening. Continue listening. This is my beloved Son, with whom I love and am well pleased. Continue listening to him. When the disciples heard it, they fell on their faces and were seized with alarm and struck with fear. But Jesus came and touched them and said, Get up, don't be afraid. And when they raised their eyes and looked around them, they saw no one but Jesus. And Luke says that they kept still. <laughs> and, <laughs> and says that they told no one at that time any of these things that they had seen. Folks, this shining cloud composed of light, it was, it was the same thing that was seen all throughout the Old Testament, called the Shekinah glory. This was the cloud that hovered over Mount Sinai that eventually lured Moses to climb it and approach God. During Israel's flight from Egypt and then later, it's the cloud that followed them by day and as a pillar of fire by night. It's the very thing that symbolized the very presence of God in the Ark of the Covenant and then later in the Holy of Holies of Solomon's Temple. Today, UFO groups try to make the Shekinah glory a hidden UFO hiding behind a cloud, which doesn't make any sense because what's to hide? If it was a UFO, a nuts and bolts spacecraft, the people of that time wouldn't have received it as any less supernatural if it wasn't behind a cloud. As a matter of fact, angels do have some form of technology, 
that the ancient texts called chariots of fire and so forth. Nothing was hidden there. This cloud isn't hiding a spacecraft, folks. If it's hiding anything, it's attempting to hide and protect man from the unfiltered holiness of God. But I'm not certain it's even going that far. I believe this cloud was a tangible form that God chose to manipulate to manifest his glory on the earth for our benefit. Because God's physics can't really enter into our dimension of reality because our reality is too small. He's all around it, above it, outside of it, and in it, everywhere at once, and in every time at once, because he's hyperdimensional. So how does someone with those sets of physics cram themselves into one place in one time so physical, limited human beings can see? Well, it can't be done, other than what Jesus did, became one of us. That's what his mission was all about. But other than that, until the universe has been redeemed from its fall, God can only do something that intersects with our reality to get our attention. You can't cram the fullness of God anywhere into our space-time continuum no more than you can cram yourself into a drawing on a piece of paper. That's how vast the difference is between our physics and God's physics. Actually, it's probably even more vast than that. I'm sure it is. So don't think that the Shekinah glory is God himself floating around with a cloud that's wrapped around him. And it certainly isn't God flying in a UFO with a cloud wrapped around it. This is the Father using three-dimensional physics to manifest his glory in a physical way to the people of earth. Because even when the Shekinah glory filled the Holy of Holies of Solomon's temple, Solomon himself said, What structure built by human hands could possibly hold the holiness of God? But here, the Shekinah glory shows up to pick up Moses and Elijah And the Father's voice comes out of it, saying what's almost identical to what he said when Jesus was baptized, remember? This is my Son, my Beloved, whom I love, whom I am well pleased. But here he adds, listen to him. So what's this all about, folks? Well, there's two purposes behind it. One is a direct response to Peter. Because whether Peter knew it or not, he was putting Moses, Elijah, and Jesus on equal footing. Master, let's build three shelters, one for you, one for Moses, one for Elijah. But they're not equals. And even though they're probably excited about being in the presence of Moses and Elijah, Jesus is the one they should really be excited about. I mean, who's Moses and Elijah compared to him? Compared to the son of the living God, you know? Which leads us to the second purpose behind all of this. Jesus overshadows or fulfills what Moses and Elijah represent the law and the prophets. Remember when Jesus said he came to fulfill the law and the prophets? The law came through Moses. He was the physical author, God's secretary, for the first five books, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, and of course the sixth book, Joshua. Joshua was Moses' successor. Everything that was called the law that God himself ordained came from those first books. The history of the beginning of the universe, the beginning of the human race, the beginning of man's fall into sin, the beginning of God's plan for redemption, and the beginning of the nation of Israel. All of that, all of that was recorded, preserved, and ordained through Moses. So Moses is an icon that embodies the law. But after the era of Moses came an era of prophecy, what was to come. God slowly unfolding his grand plan to the world through the nation of Israel. And there were several, several prophets, all of which have their names in the Old Testament, but a few names stick out, such as Isaiah, 
Ezekiel, Daniel, Jeremiah. But none of them were more bold than Elijah. This guy was really something. All the other prophets were known for their powerful prophecies that God laid out through what they wrote. But Elijah really stands out in the sense that he was empowered not just in his prophecies, but empowered the same way Moses was empowered. You know, through Moses, God turned the river Nile into blood. Through Moses, God brought down a hailstorm of ice from a clear sky, and the ice burned when it hit the ground. God, through Moses, brought three days of darkness on the planet Earth. God, through Moses, parted the Red Seas and killed the Egyptian army, so on and so forth. Well, Elijah was just as empowered. Elijah called down fire from heaven. God, through Elijah, shut off the rain for three and a half years. Remember the contest between Moses and Pharaoh, a display of power between the God of Israel and the God of Egypt? Well, there was another contest that's a lot like that one, but it's actually much more dramatic and colorful, and it took place between Elijah and the worshipers of Baal. Elijah dared them, if your God's so great, build an altar and call on him to burn your offering. So the worshipers of Baal did, and Elijah sat there and waited as they prayed and screamed and shouted, and of course nothing happened. And then after about half a day, Elijah then set up his altar to the God of the universe. And then he even made it tougher for God to burn the offering. He doused the rocks with water three times. That's how certain he was of God's abilities. And God did accept the offering and burn it up. And there's a bunch of other colorful examples like that. Some of them are really, really dramatic. And as I mentioned earlier, Elijah didn't die. He was carried up to heaven without ever tasting physical death. So if you wanted to, one of the symbolic applications you could put here, if you wanted to, is that Moses and Elijah represent two kinds of people. Those who are faithful who have died physically but live on, and those who are faithful that have never died physically but were taken and translated. Dare I use the word rapture? Jesus is Lord over both. That's pretty cool, but I think an even greater point can be made from this event. Remember what Jesus said earlier about the law and the prophets? He said that he didn't come to destroy the law or the prophets, but to fulfill. And then he said the law and the prophets were until John, meaning John the Baptist. He was the closing of an era. So if you wanted to scour the entire collective era of history, known as the law and the prophets, that's from the creation all the way up to John the Baptist. If you wanted two human beings to represent that entire era, you would wind up with Moses and Elijah. Through Moses came the law, and if anyone were to single-handedly represent all of God's prophets, it had to be Elijah. So what's happening here with these two guys and Jesus is that God is showing Peter, James, and John that the law and the prophets are under the authority of Jesus Christ. That's why after Peter puts three of them on the equal footing, the father steps in and says, Hey, this is my son. In him I am well pleased. You listen to him. When Jesus, Moses, and Elijah were speaking, who was the one doing the talking, folks? Who was the one revealing information to whom? Moses and Elijah weren't informing Jesus of anything. He's informing them. He's telling them what he's about to do. Jesus is telling Moses and Elijah about what's fixing to happen, the crucifixion, the resurrection, and the ascension. Which, if you're like me, you have to wonder, why is Jesus telling them this? Why is that information important to them? Why is that information of any significance to them and what they're doing? I mean, they've done all they're supposed to do, right? 
They freely and willfully answered the calling when it happened. God accomplished what he wanted to accomplish through them. They've performed their role in history, and they're done. They're finished. Or are they? There is a theory that I strongly agree with. This is not fact. It's merely a theory that seems to fit all of the facts that we have. But I just wanted to make sure that you understood that this is a theory. But I agree with it. In the book of Revelation, specifically chapter 11, there's two guys who show up out of nowhere. The author of Revelation calls them the two witnesses. During the deceptive rule of the Antichrist on the planet Earth, these two guys will represent the full truth of what's really going on to the nation of Israel. They aren't named, but it says that they will have the power to shut up the rain for three and a half years and turn water into blood. Sounds like Moses and Elijah to me. It also says that they will have the power to smite the earth with all manner of plagues as often as they want to do so to drive all of their points home. These two guys are going to be the sole voices of sanity and reason during the reign of the Antichrist. Because deception is going to be so thick, folks. Satan's going to pull out all the stops. He's going to give this final period everything he's got. This is his last chance. So even when God starts to send plagues and wrath upon the earth, the Antichrist is going to have a convincing lie to explain away each and every phenomenon. Or he'll take credit for it, one or the other. So God sends two witnesses to set the record straight. The world won't accept them, but Israel will. Of course, Revelation says that eventually Satan will have them killed and their dead bodies will be left alone to lie there in the street for all the world to see. And it says the whole world of different languages and nationalities will see it. Call it CNN or the Internet if you want to. And everyone will actually plan parties and celebrations around the death of these two people. It's the only record of a celebration on the earth during the Great Tribulation period. And that's over the death of these two witnesses. Their dead bodies will continually be displayed, probably on all the news channels and Internet sites, as a reminder to who's really in control, quote unquote. But then, after three and a half days, suddenly, the whole world will see them get up and stand on their own two feet as though nothing happened at all. And then a loud voice from heaven will be heard saying, Come up here. And then the whole world's celebration will come to an end as they watch in astonishment and horror as they see the two witnesses ascend up to heaven in a shining cloud. Revelation doesn't say who these two guys are, but Malachi chapter 4 did tell us that Elijah himself would be sent to the planet Earth to prepare the way for Jesus' second coming. And that's in black and white. That's not a theory. It's there. Now, does that mean he's one of the two witnesses? Maybe not. But he doesn't seem to be anywhere else in Revelation. If he's not one of the two witnesses, then where is he in Revelation? According to Malachi chapter 4, he's supposed to show up. But that just accounts for one of the two witnesses. Where's the other guy? Who is he? Revelation doesn't say, but it does say that these two will have the power to shut up the rain for three and a half years. Elijah did that. And it says they'll have the power to turn water into blood. Well, Moses did that. Now, is that concrete evidence that proves beyond all doubt that Moses and Elijah are the two witnesses in Revelation? No. But I think they are, because the more you try to identify those two characters and come up with a different answer, the more you have to twist the scripture to make it fit. 
The only other theory that fits is that the two witnesses will be unknowns because their identity will be irrelevant. It's not who they are that matters. It's the truth that they're telling and representing that matters. So they could possibly be unknowns. But if they are Moses and Elijah, it sure does bring a lot of drama and irony to the whole story. Israel will once again be defended by God via Moses and Elijah. Israel, who for 2,000 years rejected their Messiah, but always embraced historically Moses and Elijah, the Law and the Prophets, Israel will once again be witnessed to by Moses and Elijah, not only to defend them from the Antichrist, but to be Israel's witness of the truth. The Messiah, what's really going on? The same Moses and Elijah who's now taking orders from Jesus himself on the mountaintop. If the two witnesses are not Moses and Elijah, then this business on the mountaintop is really a mystery. Other than the fact that it shows that Jesus is head over the law and the prophets, we know that. I mean, we already knew that. But what's this event for? What's being accomplished? I strongly believe that what Jesus was doing here in this event was giving Moses and Elijah some final orders on their way to the 21st century or whenever to do what they're prophesied to do in Revelation chapter 11. Just a theory, but I can't find any other explanation. Anyway, this event here with Jesus is recorded by Matthew, Mark, and Luke. It was witnessed by Peter, James, and John. Peter had more to say about it in one of his personal letters that he wrote sometime later, and you can find this in 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 13 to 18. In that letter, Peter said, I think it's right to refresh your memory as long as I am living in this bodily tent, because I know that the removal of my bodily tent will come soon, as indeed our Lord Jesus Christ has shown me. And I will make every effort to see that you will always remember these things after I'm gone. For when we told you about the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, we were not following cleverly devised stories. We were eyewitnesses. We were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For when he received honor and glory from God the Father, and the voice was borne to him by the majestic glory, which said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this voice that came from heaven when we were with him on that holy mountain. Now, Peter never said anything in his gospel record penned by Mark about what Jesus, Moses, and Elijah were talking about. Only Luke recorded that. And he said that they were talking about Jesus' upcoming departure from the earth. But here, Peter may be including the promise of Jesus' return in what he heard spoken of between Jesus, Moses, and Elijah because he associates his assuredness of his return on the experience that he had at that mountain. Now, it could mean that the experience just sealed everything for Peter concerning everything Jesus taught afterwards, but there is a possibility that among the things Jesus said on that mountain to Moses and Elijah, he could have been talking about his return, because Peter says, we weren't following carefully devised stories when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. So there's a possible association there. Is it a stretch? Probably. But I only bring it up here because other than the gospel account, Peter hasn't said anything about this awesome experience until his letter. So let's get back to the gospel record and see what happened right after this. This is recorded in Matthew chapter 17, verses 9 to 13, and Mark chapter 9, verses 9 to 13. It says, as they were coming back down the mountain, Jesus admonished and expressly ordered them and said, do not mention to anyone what you have seen until 
the Son of Man has been raised from the dead. Folks, I just love the perfection of God's word. Notice he calls himself the Son of Man here. Why is that? Because the Son of God will never die. When a person dies, only the hardware dies. The software is uploaded somewhere else. And we'll find out later that while Jesus was buried for three days, his software was never turned off. He was somewhere else, and we'll get into all of that later. But the Son of Man, the human Jesus, he will die and be raised from the dead. The Bible's perfect. It's just awesome. But Jesus told them, share this with no one until the Son of Man has been raised from the dead. Mark reports that they carefully and faithfully kept the matter to themselves while questioning and disputing with one another about what rising from among the dead meant. Isn't that interesting? You can almost hear them debating about it, about whether Jesus was being literal or symbolic. You don't think he really means rise from the dead, do you? I mean, that must be symbolic for something. Nope. He's really going to be killed. And three days later, rise from the dead. But then they asked him, why do the scribes say that Elijah must come first? And Jesus answered them, well, Elijah does come first and restores all things. He will come and get everything restored and ready. And folks, Jesus is referring to the prophecy of Malachi chapter 4, verse 5. That whole chapter addresses the great and terrible day of the Lord, where the wicked are reduced to ashes, so on and so forth. But then in verse 5, it says, Behold, I will send you, talking to Israel, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and terrible day of the Lord comes, and he will turn the hearts of fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. Now, the Amplified kind of brings out the meaning of what's going on here and amplifies it like this. It says, He will reconcile the hearts of the estranged fathers to their ungodly children and the hearts of the rebellious children to the piety of their fathers, lest I come and smite the land with a curse and ban of utter destruction. That's the passage that the scribes were holding on to. That was the way the Old Testament ended. Malachi was their revelation. That's why when John the Baptist first started preaching, scribes asked him, are you Elijah? Of course, every time they were asking that, he always told them, no, that's not me. I'm not Elijah. So the disciples asked Jesus, since they just saw Elijah up on the mountaintop with Moses, they asked Jesus, you know, why did the scribes say that Elijah must come first? And Jesus answered them, Elijah does come first. It's because he will come first and restore all things. He will come and get everything restored and ready. But then Jesus says this. He says, but I tell you that Elijah has come already. And they did not know or recognize him, but did to him as they liked. So also the son of man is going to be treated and suffer at their hands. And then after thinking about it, the disciples understood that he spoke to them about John the Baptist. So Jesus here is taking a literal case and then using it for symbolism to make a point. Elijah, the real Elijah, the prophet, he is to literally come back to the planet Earth before the great and terrible day of the Lord. But John the Baptist came in the spirit and manner of Elijah. That's how his birth was proclaimed by the angel, or foretold, I should say. John the Baptist came in the spirit and manner of Elijah, and look what happened. They cut off his head. He's dead. So Jesus is saying the same treatment is coming for the Son of Man. 
Pretty interesting stuff, folks. We're going to stop it there because that's a high note. Thanks to this record, we just saw the kingdom of God temporarily intersect with the planet Earth. And when that happened, all the physical deterrents that keep us from seeing who Jesus really is became obsolete so that his true glory was visibly manifested. His face shone brighter than the sun and his clothes were as brilliant as lightning. And he was seen speaking in authority over Moses, who's been physically dead for 1500 years, and Elijah, who's been missing for 900. And the Shekinah glory, the bright cloud composed of light, came and overshadowed them, and the voice of the Father himself spoke and declared to us, who's the boss? Jesus Christ. We'll continue right where we left off next time, folks. Until then, we're out of here. Take care.